the cost of the machines came down, the cost of the alloys came down, the throughput went up, the quality went up to the point where four or five years later, we're like, wow, we think we could print an iron. And this was a great entry for the putter business. So my innovation team did something that we don't do a lot of, to be really honest. We commercialized the product. Most of the time we invent, we engineer, and we do a little bit of design work. But in this case, Ryan Roach and Cameron Day on the innovation team said, okay, if this is gonna happen, let's make this happen. And in the conversations with Hewlett Packard around polymer printing, we had a great moment with them around metal jet printing. And now you've got a solid metal object that you've printed. It's just a phenomenal project and it's a great putter. Welcome to the Wad Golf Podcast, where we speak with the influencers, disruptors, entrepreneurs, and innovators who are shaping the future of golf. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. If you're new to the Wad Golf Podcast, thanks for much for joining us, and please subscribe to the show so you hear about all the upcoming episodes and you can enter in our latest golf product giveaways. Before we get started here, I, I just wanted to thank one of our supporting partners, Golf Genius Software, for helping bring you this episode. Golf Genius Software powers tournament management at thousands of private clubs, public courses, resorts, and golf associations all over the world. So if you're a golf course operator who wants to do less work, have more fun, and generate more revenue, check them out online at golfgenius.com. I'm your host, Colin Weston, and today my guest is Mike Yagley, VP of Innovation and AI, Artificial Intelligence, with Cobra Puma Golf. As an architect and designer, I'm always on the lookout for new and innovative approaches to creating products and services, especially in the golf industry. So when I saw that Cobra Puma Golf used 3D printing technology, which I'm a big fan of and a bit of a geek when it comes to this stuff, to produce their Super Sport 35 putter, I said to myself, I just got to find that person who led the team and made this happen. Well, guess what? I did. And that person is Mike Yagley. So on this episode, we're going to dig into the creative and technical process behind the commercialization of the world's first 3D printed putter. So with that introduction, Mike, hey, thanks very much for joining us today and welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast. Thanks for having me, Colin. I'm uh, really excited to be here and talk technology innovation. That's going to nerd out a little bit here, but provide all kinds of interesting things for our guests. And what I'm going to love about this conversation, you and I jumped on a Zoom call a, a week or so ago and had an interesting conversation there. And really what we want to dig in here, Mike, is the thing that you love, and that is the process. What leads up and kind of all that steps, rapid prototyping, design thinking, all these things that may be new concepts to some of our listeners, but I really want to drill down into that. So before we get into 3D printing and putters and the other club technology, including the rad technology that you have with Cobra Puma that you're developing, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you first get into the golf industry? How did that happen? Well, I'll just say how I first got into golf. Okay. At about age seven, my mother figured out if she was going to hang out with my father, she's going to have to start to play some golf. And she needed someone to play golf with. And she bribed my brother and I with hamburgers, french fries, and milkshakes to go out to the golf course. And after about a year of that, I realized just how much fun I was having. And from my childhood into my teens and then into my adult life, golf has been a huge part of my life. I mean, I spent every day on the golf course during the summer. And at some point in my life, when I wanted to further my education, I realized, well, I really like engineering, love airplanes, love science, love math. So I studied to become an aerospace engineer at Iowa State University. I never in my wildest dreams thought that I would be in golf. The whole time I'm thinking I'm going to design airplanes. And I did that. I actually worked on bombs and missiles at a small defense contractor in uh, Waterloo, Iowa. 
And then I was at Boeing for years working on high-speed civil transport, which is like a next-generation Concorde, a supersonic uh, commercial transport. And one day there was an ad in the Seattle newspaper, tiny little ad that said that a golf ball company was looking for an aerodynamicist slash test engineer. And uh, I applied and found out quite pleasantly that there is an awful lot of science and math and technology and a lot of innovation in golf, more so than I ever had imagined, even though I'd been playing golf for years. And uh, I made the jump from aerospace into golf, and I've never looked back. That was 20-some years ago, and it's been a fabulous career for me. Amazing. Amazing. So sounds like you still love the game of golf. So you've combined uh, all the things you love in life to uh, get yourself out of bed every morning. I can hear the energy building here. You obviously love what you're doing and you love the, the, the design process from what I can understand. So tell us at Cobra Puma Golf how long ago it was and uh, how all these things came together. I understand that you partnered with Hewlett Packard and Sick Golf. So just start us off here, Mike. Part of the why is like, why did you decide as part of your innovation yeah. team, why you're going to create a 3D printed putter to start out with as a, as a golf club, the first club in the bag? Tell us that. Is How do the planets align and who really pushed this to start to design this and then commercialize it? So tell us about the, the backstory there at the beginning. Well, it's a great backstory. 3D printing has been around for years, decades, really. And we were using it to 3D print polymer prototype heads basically heads that our designers and engineers could look at. They couldn't hit them, but they could look at them and say, okay, do I like the shape? Do I like the dimensions? Do I like the curves on this? Because it's it's nice to be able to look at a CAD file or a rendering, but being able to see and touch a physical object is massive in our world. And at some point in that process, 3D printing metal prototypes, I'll use that word selectively, became available. So this, let's say this was eight, 10 years ago. And we started dreaming about how we could make our prototypes out of metal. And someday, if the cost came down enough, if the alloys that were available were the correct alloys, we could potentially print an actual commercial head. And as we started printing prototypes, say like eight years ago, we really believed that it might be 10 to 15 years out before you could print a commercially viable head, be it metal wood or an iron or a putter, primarily because of cost. I mean, the cost of those prototypes eight years ago was five or $600 a piece. And those were sometimes the cheap ones. And so we didn't even go to our marketing people or our developers and say, look, we've got something here. And true to form, like with most technologies, the advancement of that technology far outstripped what we thought it was going to. And it makes sense. It's not just about golf. It's about rocket engines and fuel mixers and very complex automobile parts medical devices, medical implants. So the desire to print a 3D metal object was super high. And we benefited from that. The cost of the machines came down, the cost of the alloys came down, the throughput went up, the quality went up to the point where four or five years later, we're like, wow, we think we could print an iron parts of a metal head. And actually, we actually did make metal woods and we weren't in the putter business, but we were thinking about getting in the putter business. And this was a great entry for the putter business. So my innovation team did something that we don't do a lot of, to be really honest. We commercialized a product. Most of the time, we develop a product. I shouldn't say develop. We invent, we engineer, and we do a little bit of design work on, say, a metal wood or an iron, or in this case, a putter. And we give it to the design team, who then works with the development team, and they commercialize it. And the innovation team kind of wipes their hands of it. But we're a small company. We don't really wipe our hands. We're right there with them. 
But in this case, Ryan Roach and Cameron Day on the innovation team said, okay, if this is going to happen, let's make this happen. So they literally took the bull by the horns and said, we're going to commercialize this putter. And in the conversations with Hewlett Packard around polymer printing, we had a great moment with them around metal jet printing. And we didn't know it at the time, but they were developing a metal jet printer. So imagine a standard inkjet printer that instead of just printing ink, there's polymer coming from that jet. And in that polymer is a metal, a fine, fine, fine metal powder that is printed. And you've got an object. It looks a lot like a putter, but it's about 20% bigger. And that part then has to be cleaned up. You center it, which means you bake it in the oven, which removes all of the polymer and it causes the metal to melt together. And now you've got a solid metal object that you've printed. And like I said, Cameron and Ryan did just a phenomenal job of taking the concept, working with HP and Parmatech, the company that's actually going to commercialize products using that HP printer, and quickly, in about a year's time, developed, engineered, designed, and commercialized that putter. It's just a phenomenal project. And it's a great putter. Amazing. Well, unfortunately, you're teasing me because I can't get one in my hands because you only did a run of a thousand. I understand they were selling for about three ninety five a piece, and they sold out within hours. I understand it's like they're on Amazon and eBay for like three times the price now. So you can't even get one for me to try out as a product review. So we'll have to we'll have to play around with some of the other great equipment, but we'll talk about that later. So just so our listeners understand here, if we're wondering what a polymer is, if they're not in in the uh, like myself in architecture and yourself in uh, in engineering, that's a a fancy way of saying plastic. So people yes it is understand that <laughs> what's a what's a polymer so it kind of melts it out yeah. so you understand just to be clear about that yep. so god so many questions to ask you let's start with this one so what are the learnings because obviously there's a feedback loop of everything you've been through with design and, and commercializing this now that you've done it once what do you look at as a company what are the real benefits here is it the speed that you can then design is well let me rather than me trying to answer why don't you answer what are the real oh. upsides you see with using 3d printer technology for creating clubs in the future that's such a great question and there are so many benefits so imagine this printer that we're talking about is rather large. The print area might be like two feet by two feet. Right. We're talking putter heads or an iron head or a component of a golf club. You can print at the same time several variants of that object, which means you could prototype, in this case, let's say 15 different putters, and you're looking at the different lattice structure. Let's just take the Supersport 35, a different lattice structure on the inside of the putter to investigate whether or not it has an impact on feel, moment of inertia, the roll characteristics because of the CG location. So you're testing all these variants at the same time, where if you were doing conventional casting or machining or forging, it might take you weeks, if not months, to make that many variants. Actually, it would take you months. Right. In some cases, years to make that many variants, but you're making them in one print. So that's just a phenomenal advantage from a prototyping standpoint. Amazing. That's just one advantage. And then from a commercial standpoint, when the processes get honed in to the point where the throughput is what we need them to be, like I said, the cost is where it needs to be. There's a massive advantage for being able to print these objects without making tooling. That saves you months. The tooling required to make a golf club head is a very complex piece of equipment. 
imagine a mold that is the negative of the object that you're going to cast. Again, we'll talk about a putter head. Well, that mold is not just a simple two-part mold. There are many complex puzzle pieces that have to come out in order for that object to be cast. And the time savings in printing is, like I said, it's months per iteration. So it's a huge advantage for understanding how the head in this case performs, how it feels, how we can design it. So that alone is massive. Yeah. How about this? I'm assuming because you can then, because this is based on a 3D model that you create, so a 3D CAD file, then the printer understands and that uses that in order to 3D print the putter or the component pieces of that. So obviously the accuracy of this is down to like fractions of a millimeter. So is it fair to say that your wastage is almost zero, that your quality assurance goes up through the roof? The fact that there's no, maybe compare it to the traditional casting of a golf club, which I don't really know much about. So maybe you can tell us a bit of that and kind of compare the traditional process of creating a golf club head as compared to the, the printing. So uh, I know I asked a couple of questions there, but maybe starting with the quality assurance there, I'm assuring there that you have maybe if one of every 20 or 30 or 40 clubs is basically garbage because of whatever, it's just not up to standards that you're probably 100% quality assured of with 3D printing. Would that be fair? Yeah, that is fair. And you asked a very astute question because I, I was go- gushing about what it does for us in innovation, but the reality is downstream in these types of processes, you are saving a lot of the raw material and you're being able to reprocess it. You do have higher accuracy in many of the dimensional and physical characteristics of that object that you're printing. So there's a a big advantage there. One of the biggest advantages is that you can make things with 3D printing that you truly cannot make with conventional casting, forging, and machining. You just can't do it. It's impossible. And what's one of the limitations Um, with with traditional casting that uh, you overcome? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Because we can put complex structures on the inside of this object. In this case, it's a putter. If you look at the Super Sport 35, you can see the lattice through the back side. And, you know, at first glance, you'd look at it, and I'm looking at one right now, you'd look at it and say, well, okay, there's, there's something on the inside. But then asking yourself, how did that get there? <laughs> because you, you can't imagine casting that because there's just so much complex structure in there. How do you get the form that you'd have to use in order to make a wax? And we'll talk about casting here in a second. To make the wax that makes the casting mold. How do you get that out of there? You can't. You can't machine it. There's no way you can get a tool in there to cut it. You certainly can't forge it. So it's almost like those interesting pyramids in Peru or over in Egypt where you you say to yourself, how did that get here? If I were to show this head to someone 50 years ago, they would say it was definitely dropped here by aliens because there's no way we have the technology to make this head. It's amazing. So So it's it's freed you up with your designed options now are... I wouldn't say limitless, but let's say are exponential as compared to what you had before because you had the physical constraints of your manufacturing process. So this is this is exciting for all the clubs. Exponential but not limitless is a great way to describe it because it, it isn't limitless, but at the same time, it opens up so much design freedom that we didn't have before. You asked about casting, and I've mentioned it a couple of times. It's a very mature process. And imagine, you mentioned the CAD process. An engineer designer sits down and designs a, we'll pick on a metal wood head, a driver head, and it's made out of titanium and it's hollow on the inside. In order to make that object, we use a casting process where to make the casting, you have to have a mold and it's kind of a ceramic mold and it is the the negative of that head. So you're going to pour metal into that ceramic mold and then break the mold apart 
because it's a it's almost like a sand a sand structure that's rigid but you break that off and once you clean that up you've got this casting well how did you make the mold to make the mold itself you make a i hate to use a mold twice okay we'll say pattern pattern is the wax from which we're going to make that casting mold but the pattern is made by injection molding wax into a hard could be aluminum or steel mold that is the opposite shape of that metal wood head. Well, you can imagine how in the heck are you going to make something that's so complex where you can take the mold away and you're left with a wax pattern that is the shape of the head. Well, the only way to do that is to make the mold itself a very complex puzzle piece mm-hmm. where it might be literally 30 pieces and there is a hole in the head like through the face and metal pieces are assembled such that when you assemble this whole mold and you injection mold the wax into it, it looks like a solid piece of metal, but then a person starts taking this mold apart and they take the pieces off the exterior, they take pieces out of the inside through the hole in the face, and they're left with this wax. And the whole process is just fascinating. It almost looks like one of those science fiction movies where you've got this puzzle that you have to solve in order to get into that pyramid that you don't know how it was built. Right, right. Um, yeah, a Raiders of the Lost Ark type puzzle. But from that comes the wax. And then the wax is put into a kind of a liquid bath with sand and other ceramic materials. And that is dried. And you're left with the outer shell into which you pour the metal. Like I said, casting has been around for a long time. And it's a very, very good process to make a metal wood head. You can make very thin, very strong titanium shells. But this whole 3D printing world that we've gotten into now can make that type of head, can make a putter, could make an iron and can make it fast without that very complex tooling that I just spent five minutes describing that takes sometimes months to make. So that's the advantage of the 3D printing. We can do it in days. Well, I was going to ask you, you started to answer my next question. I wanted to know, first of all, with the Supersport 35 putter, how many pieces are there that go together to making the head and are all of them 3D printed? I think the answer is yes. I'll let you answer that because you're obviously on the design team. And how long does it take to 3D print all of the components that make up the head of a Supersport 35 putter? That's a great question. The main bodies, you're looking down at if you saw the head, the head is definitely 3D printed. Okay, There are some medallions on the bottom that are not. Those are aluminum pieces that are there mainly for decoration because from a design standpoint, you, you need some bling on the putter. Right. You, you need it to look good. And then the face itself is actually a aluminum plate that is machined. And we put the sick descending loft technology into that plate and then bond it into the head. So you've got three major components, the medallions, the head itself, and the face. And the head itself, which is a majority of the mass, is what is 3D printed. Right. Got it. And how long does it take, if you're able to tell us that, how long does it take to print that head? Now that you did a thousand of them, how long did it take each one? To print on the order of hours. And the printing process, as you describe this, you're laying down a bed of powder. You know, I said that the metal is in the polymer as it's dropped. That's not true. The powder is sitting there. The polymer is dropped onto it, which causes it to bond. Uh, That's a more accurate description of what's happening. And then you do that layer by layer. So you've got a layer of powder. You drop polymer where you want this thing to become a solid object. You put another layer of powder down. You drop more polymer. Another layer of powder, drop more polymer. That's how it's actually built. 
and a couple hours to build several putter heads. You clean the loose powder away. You put that head into an oven. And like I described before, you bake out the polymer and then you're melting the metal and it actually shrinks down about 20%, retains its form, which to me is an engineering miracle. I can't imagine how something with a very complex shape with lots of detail shrinks by 20% and holds that detail, but it does. It's called a sintering process. So that's how it's made. We can make hundreds of them in a matter of a couple of weeks right now, but that's with, and honestly, the experience has just been phenomenal. HP has been a great partner for us because they are developing this machine while Parmatech, who will be a purchaser of the machine, is learning how to make parts with it so they could sell parts to companies like us. So we're in the middle of the development, the engineering, the innovation, and the development of the machine and the process while we have been innovating and designing and developing a product. So it's just been a great partnership across the board. Wow. I get a feeling you kind of love your job, don't you? Colin, I really, really do. I mean, I I tell everyone, especially as they're young kids that are going into school and they're looking for careers, I'm like, man, if you can do one thing, work in an area or an endeavor that you really love, it makes a huge difference. I truly do love what I do. I can can sense that. It's just oozing out of you through the microphone here. So for the production of the thousand units that you created for the Supersport 35 putter, did you only have one two foot by two foot printer? What was your throughput or, or do they have more than that? Or how, how did that work production wise? Or the fact that you were not rushing to get this to market, maybe you only wanted to do one at a time. Well, HP has some up in Oregon and they also have some in Spain where they're another one of their engineering centers are. So as they're developing the machines, they'll of course make more of them. But we, I think we sucked up a lot of their capacity for a couple of weeks to make these putters. And we went through several iterations, like 30 some iterations, I believe. Might have been more actually, iterations of that putter. And like I said, the beauty of it is they had an opportunity to make a commercial product. Sometimes you're developing a process or a machine, you're just making parts to make parts. Well, no, they were making parts to sell parts, which was phenomenal. Okay, so I have to ask you this question. I understand there's only so much you can tell us here, Mike, because of as far as trade secrets and IP and and where you're going to go as a company. But it, it seems to me that in five years or 10 years time, perhaps every single clubhead, whether it's irons, drivers, hybrids, putters are going to be 3D printed. If this is not only the future, but the offsetting from the traditional methods of building and creating clubheads is going to be replaced. So tell us about that. Are, are you already, you can be kind of coy here if you want, but are you already looking at other clubs in the bag to 3D print? More than looking, we have 3D printed other clubs in the bag. We have 3D printed metal woods out of titanium and steel. We've done irons. We've done wedges, primarily for prototyping. But there may have been a tour player, Bryson DeChambeau, that had a 3D printed head in the bag for a while. No, it was a it was a fairly conventional shape and it allows us to put the CG where he or other players may want it, allows us to play with the structures on the inside a little bit. So we've been more than dabbling in the use of 3D printing for clubs other than putters. Now, to answer your question, but also be a little coy, not to be that coy, honestly, if the alloy costs and the conversion, when I say conversion, you got to take powder or whatever the initial raw material is and turn it into an object. If that cost comes down far enough, then I would say, yes, there would be no reason not to do it. Other than there are times that forging and sometimes casting can give you 
I'd say mechanical properties like bending of an iron, feel. There are times where the conventional processes do make a better golf club. But if the cost, the throughput, the quality, the performance, the feel all converge over the next five to 10 years, there's no reason why you wouldn't use 3D printing more. Yeah. But I would say if it works for the golfer, that might be the easiest way to say it. Right. It works for the golfer. Right. It feels right. It performs right. It's durable. It's the right price. Then yeah, heck yes, I'd do it. And that's the kind of the art and science of what you deal with every single day between you're dealing with both sides of the brain of the recreational and professional golfer, right? It's obviously it has to technically perform, but also there's such an emotional attachment to the club, to the brand, to the aesthetic. And you talked about adding some bling to the putter there too, that because there's these other emotions attached to it with ego and pride and all those things and what's in your bag. So Sounds like you're always balancing between the emotional side and the performance side of what you're putting in your bag, which must be a lot of fun too. A challenge, but lots of fun. Oh, it, it honestly is. I mean, take for example, Bryson DeChambeau. He has broken the mold, semi-pun intended, yeah. in terms of what a club has to look like. Since I've been in the industry, there are standards for what a club has to look like to be called a driver and an iron and a putter. And he literally doesn't care. If it performs, he does not care what it looks like. Now, the reality is, in order for it to perform, it's still got to look like a golf club, but there are some things that we can do to the club in terms of its shaping, shaping from a, a top-down standpoint, from a face standpoint, that 15 years ago, 10 years ago, a golfer would have said, oh, I could never play with that. And Bryson's like, I don't care if it works, I'll use it. And we're hearing more and more of that now, which is refreshing from an innovation standpoint, because if there are things from a, let's say a driver head shape that five years ago, 10 years ago, players like, oh, I can't play that. Well, they don't know it, but they're limiting themselves in terms of where we could put the center gravity. It's aerodynamic performance. And by allowing us to make clubs that are maybe a little different looking and they're like, hmm, I can play that, they're going to see performance gains, which is refreshing from an innovation standpoint. Yeah, I'm excited about where golf can go. I am too. It's you and your innovation group at Cobra Puma Golf are just scratching the surface here. It's still, it's kind of in its infancy. And part of what I love what you're doing here in the innovation side, and you must be familiar with this book from Clayton Christensen, written about 20 years ago, called The Innovator's Dilemma, where he talks mm -hmm. about, cites all kinds of different examples and case studies of different technologies, different industries in tech and non-tech, where a technology or a product at the beginning, it doesn't perform high enough, it's too expensive, but then over time, the price comes down, the performance goes up, and then it completely disrupts the other industry, whether it's in the hard drive space or chip technology or steam shovels is one example that he gives. And it seems that what you're talking about, if the price of 3D printing with materials and the process goes down, to me in the future, that innovator's dilemma is not going to be a dilemma anymore in the golf club manufacturing side of things for the majority of clubs. Would you agree with that, that that innovator's dilemma plays into golf club design and manufacturing? It absolutely will. I mean, Colin, I told you that 10 years ago, the cost of it, and it, I mean, literally it was 10x what it was now. Mm. 10x, that's a massive number. So who's to say that it can't come down by another 5x from where it is today? And that's when it works. So I would not be surprised. There is, of course, a limit because the process inherently is a little bit more expensive than the conventional processes, but it's going to keep coming down. Yeah. It's going to work. Yeah. And you talked about already about your wastage just going down. So let us know on, on average out of a thousand drivers that are forged or cast, what is the wastage of that? How many do you have to toss away that you can't sell 
the performance does doesn't meet specifications. I'm, not, I'm just curious here to drill into the business side of it here for Cobra Puma Golf. If all of a sudden, if you can reduce your wastage and generate revenue off of 2%, 8%, 9% more clubs, that's just money in the bank for you there with your process. Our throughput's way north of 90% right now, most of our products. And a lot of the rework isn't necessarily due to the initial casting or forging. There would be a cosmetic defect that happened post initial forming the as cast or the as forged head. Then from a, a material standpoint, I wouldn't say it's a significant amount of waste, but when you forge a head, there's a lot of flash that comes out. So you might start with, let's say, a 300-gram billet, and you whack it a bunch of times, and you end up with a 270-gram head. So there's 30 grams that have gone somewhere. And with 3D printing, there'd be less of that. And the same with casting. That's 10% of material. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Same with casting. There'd be a lot less waste because that with casting, you've got multiple heads on a tree. As I described that process before with wax, I described one wax, one pattern. But you actually wax weld those to a tree. So now you've got this tree-looking thing thing with multiple iron heads or metalwood heads on them. Yeah. And so you're losing the material of the tree itself and the gates and the runners, which is where the material has to flow and actually to get into where the head is formed. So a lot of that would be reduced. There'd be definitely some benefits. It's not just the time benefit. It's not just a design benefit. It is also a material benefit to 3D printing. Definitely. Yeah. That's just cost savings right there, just on mm-hmm. your material, you kind of your, your overhead costs, your capital costs of producing products. Yes. It's so really great stuff. One thing I love, because we talk to entrepreneurs here in the golf space, and some of them are solopreneurs just starting up. Others are, I call you an intrapreneur. You're an entrepreneur within an organization there with what you do on the innovation side. I'm using that term. I didn't invent the term, but it's <laughs> definitely appropriate to, uh, to the many hats that you wear there, Mike. But I love the fact that you embrace partnerships and collaborations as all entrepreneurs, whether they're they're startups or whether they're well-established. And just great tips there for entrepreneurs out there is realize you don't have to create everything yourself for you to then say, oh God, we have to invest all this money in all these printers that are really expensive and we don't really know if this is going to work. You partner with people, took that cost off the table there. So are there any other tips you can give for entrepreneurs, both in, well, in the golf space or tech space or any industry segment as far as tips for collaboration in order to move your product to commercialization. Absolutely. Pick up the phone, make contacts. I've got probably the best innovation team on the planet. Our guys, I mentioned Cameron Day and Ryan Roach and Mike McDonald and Clayton Evans and Bryce Hobbs. They are a starting rotation that could rival the Padres right now from an innovation versus baseball standpoint. (laughs) They are the best on the planet. Right. And then I throw in Chad DeHart, who's working on a lot of our Arcos. He's leading our putter business right now, our burgeoning putter business. It's a great team. And those guys are poster childs for constantly looking out for what is available, not just in golf, but in other spaces. They see very interesting material information. It could be carbon fiber materials. It could be ways to damp carbon fiber vibration. It could be different alloys in titaniums or steels, different processes. We're doing a lot of processing around additive manufacturing. It could be MIM technology, which is metal injection molding, or this printing technology, or direct laser printing technology. They're constantly scouring the earth. And I would say the same thing to anyone out there who's got an idea, but they need some help. 
Just keep searching and don't be afraid to ask questions because a lot of times, like in our case, they want to work with us because they need a real world problem to solve and they want to be a good partner. Nice. Yeah. Well, you just dropped two more amazing entrepreneurial nuggets there. The one about make sure you're looking for a problem to solve, right? Yes. Don't be that entrepreneur that's creating a product or a service that is a solution looking for a problem. Yep. And believe me, I go to the PGA show, obviously virtual this year, and they know who I am now or a lot of them. And they're just tracking me down and they've got some gimmicky product, whether it's a swing training aid or whatever. And I'm like, yep. oh, please stop what you're doing here for the love of God. Just save yourself the time and the aggravation and also the opportunity cost of the years of your life that you're spending creating something that there isn't a market for. Yeah. So definitely do the market side of the validation of that also. So I absolutely love that. And the collaboration side you mentioned too is so critically important. And also look out of side, you mentioned this, look outside of your industry for inspiration, for validation, see what's resonating, see what works, whether it's processes, whether it's trends and patterns that are emerging, Yes. behavioral patterns of people outside of your industry and what they love and what they don't like and use that and take the best elements of that and then infuse that into whatever you're creating in the golf industry. Oh yeah. So you're doing it. You're putting on a masterclass here. I'm going to pile on what you just said too, because our design team continually looks outside. So design outside of innovation, the team that we hand our innovations to, they're constantly looking outside for what's cool. It could be colors. It could be designs. It's aircraft. It's motorcycles. It's automobiles. It's anything that is a cool, fast, inspirational shape. And then our research team, who I love, Tim Benno will constantly ask the question, what problem are we trying to solve? What's broken, right? What isn't working that we need to fix? Or what is it that has never been invented that if we were to invent that would solve a problem? Nice. Love it. So it sounds like the culture at Cobra Puma Golf is from the top down, gives you permission to experiment and to fail, right? And at least try things quick. And it sounds like you are liberated here. You don't have to worry about anybody looking over your shoulder and going, oh my God, if this doesn't work, this could be it for me at Cobra Puma Golf. It sounds like you have this sandbox (laughs) and you're just allowed to play. Obviously, it is a business. You got to make sure you bring things to market. Yes. But it sounds like you you get to play in a sandbox every day, don't you? Colin, you know, you, you asked whether or not I love my job. I do love my job. And I have the best job at this company, maybe in the whole golf industry of anybody because of what you just said. We get to play. We get to try stuff. I wish I could share with you some of the stuff we're trying right now because there's some crazy ass stuff. Pardon the, the French in there. That's all right. But we've got some crazy stuff going on that may or may never see the light of day but it's fun. Love it. So it sounds like you got a bit of a skunk works group set up there, work in stealth mode. And it sounds like you're part of that, which sounds super fun. Yeah, it is. Yeah, nice. I also love the fact as we finish up here, Mike, you talk about other collaborations and you mentioned with Arcos, you were the first ones in the, in the golf equipment industry to partner with them. And it sounds like your relationship and collaboration just keeps deepening with them. And I've had Sal Sayed, founder of Arcos on the podcast a couple of times, love what they do. I've used Arcos and I truly believe it's reduced my handicap by five or six strokes to help me choose the right club rather than waste the best swing of the day on the golf course with the wrong club, which I've done so many times and hit it 20 yards over the green and that's two strokes. And oh my God, what did I just do? So tell us a little bit about that, about the partnership that Cobra Puma Golf has with Arcos. Well, it's funny. That's the same sort of thing. It's like four or five years ago, they actually reached out to us because they knew we were looking in the space and they were very new in the space. 
They seemingly had a relationship with another OEM. Turns out they didn't really. And so it was a very natural partnership because we were looking for more data, more information, more technology, and they had it. And they were developing, unbeknownst to us, they were developing a new sensor that could fit into a grip. And we happened to have intellectual property on said grip. So it was a match made in heaven. We were able to develop a grip with the grip vendors that would house their sensor, has a very slight weight penalty on the club. We tested the heck out of it and we're like, this really works well. It is an automated system that will track where you hit each club on the golf course. This is an on-course system. And once you know where you've hit each club, the beginning is where it's been hit. The end, the end of that shot is where the next club is hit. So you've got this breadcrumb trail and you have effectively shot link or PGA Tour like data, but with one huge advantage, you know what club was hit. On shot link, they don't know what club has been hit. We do. And as you mentioned, you piece together that round and do it several times, let's say over five rounds. Now you've got a really good data set for where you're hitting all your clubs. And suddenly you find out that you really hit your seven iron 156 yards. You thought you hit it 166, but really it is 156. And 75% of the time you're coming up short. So why not club up and play a little smarter? Or you keep banging your head against the driver wall on number seven at your course and you're making double bogey every time you play that stupid hole. Why not hit a three wood off the tee, keep it in play and make a par? And the number of people that have experienced just what you said, you're getting smarter about playing golf, is nothing short of phenomenal. Every year, year over year, so we've been at it for three years now, the improvement of the player's who play with the system for about five rounds to kind of get a baseline and then play with it for 10 more rounds to just see their data and start playing smarter. The average improvement has been between like high three and a half to four to almost five strokes. Nice. So call it on average, a little over four strokes every year, four strokes, four strokes. Most golfers would cut their arm off to improve four strokes. It's amazing just from playing a little smarter. Well, I, I can attest to that. And during COVID in 2020, I played the most golf that I had, no, seriously, than any other year. I was one of those people that well, I was warned this about seven years ago. It's like, Colin, when you get in the golf industry, you, you will give up your golf game. And not that I played that much. I was like 15 rounds a year, kind of stuck at around a 20 handicap. My friends were even worse. So we, you know, that's just what we did. And then I played less and less and less. And we were doing work with Top Golf. So I, when I was hitting balls, it was mostly at Top Golf facilities with the work that we were doing with them. And yeah, with Arcos now, it's incredible just unlocking that data set that you mentioned. It's, it's phenomenal that now I choose the right club. So rather than making those decisions, Arco says to do this. And as you know, it brings in elevation. It brings in wind speed in real time. And it's like having a professional caddy taking the club out of your bag. And there's a couple of times, Mike, where I've yep. then done the manual override. I've done the old Luke Skywalker with the, in the Death Star, like taking the technology off and I'm just going to fire myself. And I missed. Like every time it's, I've done that, I've taken one more club, one less club. And it's like, oh my God, I should have just listened to Arcos. Again, just use the club they say. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I tell you what, so I have a personal experience. Sal texts me last week and he goes, hey, do you mind if I look at your data? Um, I said, sure, have at it. And I didn't tell him this, but I had switched shafts because I gave my set to someone else. And I had basically the same heads, but I switched from, and I'm not even going to mention the brands. I'll just say I switched from a graphite shaft to a stock steel shaft. Okay. 
And my game was suffering and I had no idea what was really going on. And Sal and team are launching, they have launched strokes gained, but they're going to launch great enhancements to strokes gained. So he was using some of these enhancements that we will all have access to in the very near future. And he looked at my strokes gained for the eight rounds I'd played with the shaft B, which is the second shaft versus shaft A, the first shaft. He goes, Mike, you're two strokes worse per round. Right. He didn't know what would ha- what had happened. He goes, I don't know what you did, but you have lost two strokes. And I'll be darned. I looked at my data because I looked at some of my uh, greens and regulation. It, it wasn't real apparent at first. But then when I started isolating rounds, I was like, oh my gosh, it's right there in front of me. There's the data. Now this strokes gained analysis is coming to all of us and it is phenomenal. So you know what I'm putting in my clubs today? Those same graphite shafts I had in before. I'm switching them today. Yeah. There we go. Two strokes. It was amazing. <laughs> there you go. And I've done the same thing. I've got it down to um, just under I'm like a 13.7 yep. now. And I was like an 18 See? a year ago. And I've done the same with strokes gain where I've put in for what I hopefully will be in 12 months from now. I aspire to be an eight. So it gives me the baseline of where over driving, approach shots, chipping, and putting. Those four categories, as you know, Mike, where you're losing strokes and where an eight handicapper, where they are on strokes. And it tells me right away where I need to work. And I know right now I need to work off off the tee and I definitely need to work with chipping. So with that, perhaps I need to get one of those rad speed drivers in my hand to see if that that could somehow help me rather than my swing. (laughs) I may know someone who knows someone that could help you out with that. Uh, Well, we do, as I think you know now, (laughs) with our ModGolf YouTube channel, one of the things we love to do is our product reviews, the honest reviews from a 14 handicapper i.e. me and some of my friends that, hey, if that's something I don't want to put any pressure on you, put you on the spot here, but that's something you want to talk about later of, of doing a review and maybe even doing a giveaway, which we do too. Maybe that's something we can actually make happen since you got no putters to give away. I know. So, uh, so we'll have to do something else. Well, I'd say stay tuned on the putters. I'll make no further comment. And then uh, with the Metalwoods, absolutely. Yeah. Because the beauty of it is, so I've been with Cobra now for 10 years. This week was my 10 year anniversary. And I've played a lot of equipment through the years, a lot of different manufacturers. The Cobra golf equipment, almost every time when someone who has not experienced it goes into a hit bay, grabs her friend's club, they're like, holy cats, I had no idea this stuff was that good. We make really good stuff, really good stuff, and I'm proud of it. Ah. So yeah, I'd love to do a review. All right. Well, there you go, mod golfers out there. You heard it. So we're going to do a review. Maybe we'll do a giveaway. Stay tuned for that. So Mike, I could just keep going here for like hours with you, but hey, because we do want to jump on our video interview. We're going to do a short piece for our uh, our YouTube channel, which of course, we're going to be talking about some different things, ask some different questions so that the content is fresh and not redundant so hey why don't we just finish up here right now and let's jump over there so mike yagley this this has been amazing i've loved this conversation here with what you're doing there and heading up innovation and artificial intelligence the internet of things for golf clubs and your partners with arcos it's amazing so mike thanks so much for joining me today on the mod golf podcast this has been amazing colin it has been my pleasure I just want everyone right now to go out there and play some golf and enjoy the game. That's all we want here at Cobra Golf. Just go enjoy the game. Amen to that. Yeah. Amen to that. That's what we do. All right, Mike, you take care. We'll talk soon. Take care. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Mod Golf Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mike Yagley, VP of Innovation and AI at Cobra Puma Golf. If you'd like to learn more about Mike and the equipment innovations his Cobra Puma Golf engineering and design team are passionately creating, visit our episode show page where we've included website links and contact information. The video link for my extended conversation with Mike is also on our episode show page. 
and please subscribe to the Mod Golf YouTube channel while you're there. If you leave a comment, I promise to respond. Please join me next time when my guest is Andy Walker, director of the United Golfers Association's Player Development Academy, who are preparing young black golfers to achieve success on the many professional tours around the world. I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor partners, Golf Genius Software and British Columbia Golf, for helping make the Mod Golf podcast happen. Without their support, I wouldn't be able to bring you these engaging stories from golf's brightest innovators and influencers. Our friends at Golf Genius Software have added a new digital scorecard option to their live scoring capabilities of its tournament management platform. So if you're a golf course owner or operator, I suggest you check them out at golfgenius.com to find out how they can reduce your workload, help you have more fun, and generate more revenue. If you enjoyed this conversation about entrepreneurship in the golf industry, you can find more compelling episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen in. I'm your host, Colin Weston. Thanks so much for joining me. Bye for now.